0: Hello, hello. How are you doing, Courtney?
1: Hey there. Good morning.
0: Thanks for being with us today. Extremely excited about this. Should be very inspiring and a nice uh, shift from the traditional conversation in Silicon Valley around, you know, how to, how to rent seek on, uh, you know, simple pieces of software. You are, in fact, doing almost the inversion of that. Courtney has uh, been 10 years on uh, Google's comms team. And now you have one of, I think, the most envious jobs uh, known to man. You are the storyteller, chief storyteller for Moonshots at Google X. First kind of fairly simple question is, uh, what does that mean?
1: Uh, Yes, great, great place to start. So hi, everyone. I'm Courtney Owen. and I uh, have, yeah found myself in this, in this strange position of, of chief storyteller for moonshots at a moonshot factory. So why don't I start by explaining what the heck a moonshot factory even is? So we are trying to invent and launch radical new technologies that could make the world a, a much, much better place. And the mechanism we use to, to do that is we actually create businesses which could live within Alphabet, so X's and Google's parent company, or in some cases, we've actually spun them out uh, to become standalone businesses. But what's unique about uh, a moonshot factory is really the, the ambition and audacity of the ideas and problems that we are tackling. So we are very deliberately setting out to work on problems that affect many, many millions or ideally billions of people and we are looking out into a five to 10 year time horizon, which is further out in the future than most, say, venture capitalists and, and traditional investors tend to look. But yet it's not so far out in the future that the world uh, will have changed too much by the time we actually get there. So, So five to 10 years feels like a a a sweet spot. Uh, And so my role within X has really been um, kind of on two levels. One is to explain what X and what a Moonshot Factory is overall, because uh, we grew out of Google. We were originally founded as Google X in 2010. And then when Alphabet was created in 2015, we became our own division responsible for essentially inventing some of the future of Alphabet. So so part of my role is to explain X and, and attract the next generation of moonshot takers to, to come and give this a, a go with us. And then I also spend a lot of time coaching the entrepreneurs and inventors and creators at X as they are tackling their own moonshot. So, sometimes that is helping them set up their communications and marketing foundations, make first contact with the real world of of partners and testers and others to kind of give them feedback and help them advance their ideas. Uh, And other times, I'm I'm providing kind of all-around kind of leadership and, and entrepreneurship coaching so my my job works on a lot of different levels and and that's actually why i'm I'm still here after so many years. it's it's a it's a role that constantly reinvents itself, and the role is itself helping to invent the future, which is awfully easy to to get out of bed for uh, any day of the year.
0: It's very interesting. You know, if we look at, you know, federal uh, spending as a fraction, uh, federal R&D spending as a fraction of GDP, um, it, of course, peaked like, I think, mid-60s and pretty much has been on a steady decline ever since. And if you contrast that with business spend on like, you know, we're talking base substrate R&D here, you know, not like a little Python app, but, you know, really um, uh, space elevators it's very much gone up almost to replace it. Do you kind of think of yourself uh, at Axe as kind of basically f- fixing you know, a deficit almost in, in how government spends?
1: That's such a great question. It really gets to the heart of whose job is it to solve the world's biggest problems? Uh, I actually think not enough people think it is their job to go after you know, radical new new solutions. There's a bit of, of not it-itis on all sides of the ecosystem. I think governments certainly have played that role with R&D funding. Um, there's very, very few organizations outside of, say, government and national labs that that have the resource to look really far into the future and fund kind of basic breakthrough science that may take decades to to turn into kind of real economic value but at the same time governments are often prone to thinking oh how are the political winds blowing right now and and or they have other you know more pressing things taking their their attention I think big companies, especially public companies, tend to be subject to the shorter-term pressures of the market. There's there's relatively few who have the bravery to be like, nope, we're steering a course out, you know, a decade plus from now. You're just going to have to bear with us. Larry and Sergey put that in Google's shareholder letter back in you know the early 2000s. I think small companies tend to think, oh well, we can work at a corner of a problem, but we don't. We're not big enough to to solve the whole problem universities have a, a very very big big role to play in, in being those bridges that get closer from from science to commercialization but they often you know are in, incented by you know publishing and also you know just as people are very interested in pushing knowledge forward rather than, than doing that that next lap through to kind of prototypes and, and things that start to look like products so so I, I do think there's there's a this challenge where everybody's kind of looking around expecting other people to do it and the, the reality is we all need to, to spend more of our, our time and attention and, and willpower and money uh, on these, these long-term and high-risk concerns.
0: Fascinating. And, and of course, one of the reasons you, you mentioned this, um, one of the reasons why companies, uh, of course, don't usually do fundamental research is they are um, vehicles that are subject to, you know, kind of short term uh, pressure for profit. How, how do you guys think about that, you know, especially given the fact that a lot of the great research that has, you know, kind of produced many of the innovations we all rely on, you know, radar, satellites, many um, of the drugs we used, was not initially made, I believe, with the original end business concept online. And so, you know, if I present to Google X and I say, look, this is really cool, I'd need, you know, a couple million dollars just to play with atoms in this particular way. I don't know why. Does that type of thing get funded or, or must one really describe the kind of end business result?
1: So, we tend to, we believe that that kind of profit and purpose go go hand in hand. So, we are, Working on the big problem, we we need to be able to articulate the big real problem in the world we're trying to solve, and we need to have some sense, even if it's kind of back of the envelope for now, that there is a business to to getting there. So that's that's where X sits in the ecosystem. But but to address kind of your specifically your question, like well, where is the handoff from you know basic science or even kind of early lab prototypes, and then where does where does X fit in? We typically te- we don't fund a lot of super basic science. We we've certainly been known to to invest in in labs here and there, small amounts of money, more for just encouraging interesting um, explorations to keep going, but not with an eye toward oh that is a moonshot ready to feed into our pipeline. We we keep close ties with the research community so that we know what breakthrough technologies are just starting to kind of ferment and foment such that they could wrap into our thinking somewhere. But it's very, very unlikely that we're going to find a a whole fully articulated kind of moonshot project lying around in a a national lab somewhere.
0: Very interesting. Um, This seems like there's, maybe we can almost think of kind of three notches on the free market spectrum here where You kind of have obvious products that produce short-term revenue. Of course, the company's going to do that. And maybe at the other extreme, you have like, I don't even sure how this ever makes money or will anyone want it? Maybe it seems like the Google strategy there is we'll fund labs to do that. And, And you kind of have this interesting sweet spot in the middle of once there is kind of an interesting commercial purpose for it, which with a slightly maybe elongated timeline, then maybe it can get folded in. Now I'm kind of curious, you know, just for maybe some interesting stories around the 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 or the early stories of 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 Waymo or Loon, you know, how all of that went about, um, you know, in as nitty gritty detail as you can, of course, don't spare us anything.
1: I've got lots of good stories from those early days, and and actually, self driving cars now, Waymo is a is a great one to take a look at. So I believe it was in the early '90s that the first self driving car trip crossed the United States. So I think that was a group at, at Carnegie Mellon, if I'm not mistaken. There were also groups at, at Stanford, but there were there was a lot of academic research happening, a lot of DARPA money going in, uh, DARPA Grand Challenges in that 90s and, and early 2000s timeframe to self-driving cars when they really were purely in research stage. Then the self-driving car team at Google was founded in 2009 when it was clear from the progress of the research that these things were going to be viable, we thought, you know, again, not definitively in 2009, 2010, but there was starting to be a sense that that a significant kind of new stage had been, a stage of belief had been reached where it was starting to be possible to to dream of these things operating on real roads and around your grandmother and your kids or, or with your grandmother or your kid's in them, and so that's really the the stage where where X is is kind of at, at its best. We have our blueprint for X moonshots, in or, like to help us spot that kind of perfect tipping point for when something you know could and should be of interest to X. It's three circles Venn diagram. One of the circles is you need a, um, a huge problem in the world, as I mentioned. So in the case of self-driving cars, it was the fact that 1.2 million people die on the roads around the world every year. In fact, it might be closer to 1.3 now. And that doesn't even get into the kind of tax of distracted driving or, you know, worrying about your grandfather driving at age 85 and, and dreading that conversation about taking away Extreme the car keys. Yeah. And then, so that's, so we ask every team to articulate a huge, huge problem in the world. And that's also to prevent folks, especially engineering types, from being like, I'm not sure what this is going to be good for, but I'm sure if we can just make it work, then millions of dollars and and millions of users will follow. So it's, it's, it's some intellectual rigor around the problem. The second circle is a radical proposed solution to that huge problem in the world. So can you say, okay, what is the collection of Things, if you put them together in the right way, uh, could solve the problem. So in the case of self-driving cars, the radical proposed solution, which seems sort of obvious now, 12 years on, is cars that can drive themselves. I mean, back in 2008, 2009, this is one on nobody's, nobody's radar. Then uh, our third circle is a breakthrough technology or technologies that are just starting to emerge out of research, out of labs, out of kind of paper earliest prototype land and into a space where we think "Hmm, that that seems possible. There's still a ton of work to do to prove it out, but we can lean on that. to If that could work reliably at scale, like we could make that that radical solution and then solve the problem. So in the case of self-driving cars, that was uh, smart sensors uh, and software working together such that a car could establish itself in space, understand its environment, and navigate on its own.
0: What were some of the early arguments? Obviously, now it's so clear to everyone in 2020 hindsight that, that, you know, this is the very obvious kind of next future, you know, microwave, satellites, internet, self-driving cars. It's kind of a clear continuum but but back then i imagine it wasn't so clear what were some of the kind of common knocks on maybe why google should not be investing in or or sorry alphabet should not be investing in self-driving cars
1: yeah so so interestingly there was this feeling of whoa yeah that would be amazing if we could make that happen because ev- like it sounds like the future and of course, like, you would look to a company like Google to have the kind of magical brave brains who would make that happen. But the the biggest fear, and you could feel it in the teams, like communications at the time, was, whoa, safety, like, robot car is coming for you and your grandmother. And then just a sense of, like, that's just way too hard. Like, I, I think that that's probably a common feeling across all the projects that we work on. Where most people would hear what we're proposing and be like, oh, we already know that space. We know that industry. We know that problem. We know that technology. That's just way too hard. You're crazy and wasting your time. And when we hear that, that tends to be a positive signal for us. We're like, ah, well, maybe we're onto something. Now, that doesn't mean we don't listen to the people who are saying, that's too hard. That technology isn't ready. There's still too many challenges to uncover. And we should, we are deeply curious and and want to learn from those people, but you can't take those things as utter deterrence. Like that's that's why the world's problems aren't getting solved fast enough. In fact, I have what I call the um, the yeah 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 problem. One common thing I've seen every time we have you know announced a a new area of of moonshot exploration is a lot of the people who first hear about this problem we're trying to solve, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't, why do you guys need to do that? That problem already has lots of smart people working on it. It's going to get solved eventually. It doesn't need giant stratospheric balloons. And, and this is a true story. Like this is back in um, 2013. So we had, we had founded Loon. And by founded, I mean like three Xers and their dog, like driving around the central Valley and their beat up Subaru, like, ordering balloons off the internet and putting them up in the air with a Wi-Fi receiver to see if they could actually get a connection down to the ground. So 2011, 2012, after we had been kind of playing around and basically proving that uh, we hadn't found a reason not to go forward, like we had lots of people being like, this shouldn't work. And we're like, "Mm, I think it can. Rich Duvall, Cliff Biffle, like the early founders, they just kept going and, and it kept working. And so uh, spring of 2013, we were getting ready to go test in the real world at some scale for the first time. And New Zealand was a country that was okay having us hanging out among the airplanes in their airspace. And also, you know, they've got plenty of Pacific Ocean off their coast. So they're like, okay, sure. Like give it a go, but be safe. And so that spring we were gearing up toward a, I think it was a mid June launch of about 30 balloons off of the coast of, of Christchurch, New Zealand. Uh, the South Island. And I was calling up uh, a handful of journalists to see if they wanted to make the trip. And I rang up uh, a reporter who was based in the UK and who I had called because they covered the problems of internet connectivity a lot in their career. They had covered it, the problems of rural England, they had gone to Africa. So here was someone who was I thought dialed into the problem at a time when no one in Silicon Valley was talking about this problem. Right, this was pre—you know—Facebook's Internet.org work. This was like this problem was just not on the radar for those of us in kind of apartments and houses where we already had internet. So I rang up this journalist and pitched him my story of these dreamy internet balloons. And well, heck, it's going to be an adventure, and who doesn't want to go to New Zealand? And there was this pause on the phone. And he goes, "Mm, Courtney, like that just seems like an awful lot of effort. Like I I think cell phones and Wi-Fi and and fiber is going to get us there. And I tried to debate and and argue with him, but I was flabbergasted because who doesn't love a balloon and who doesn't, again, who wouldn't try to to keep solving this problem? And so I ran back to the team and I'm like, you guys, like we've got a a fundamental disconnect here, which is the world still doesn't believe that new innovation in this area is needed. Like the world is just not feeling the urgency and that is why this problem is not getting solved. And therefore we matter more than ever, keep going, yay. And so, <laughs> so I've seen that. Very good I've in
0: outgroup dynamic bonding there, yeah.
1: Totally, and we've seen that play out. In, in field after field, I mean, self-driving cars, we were in there, we had um, you know, smart contact lenses, we had wing delivery drones were early. I mean, I think Amazon was in there around the same time horizon, but, but we're often in these problem spaces and in these new technology options long before the, the rest of the world is like, huh, okay, we should have a guy look into that. And if we can be early signalers, fine, we're happy in that position.
0: What why do you think? I mean, a small aside, but what what do you think drives that? Why do you think it is? It seems to be a fact of nature almost that the the pessimism is always there and is almost easier to reach for than the optimism. Wh- what do you think drives that?
1: I do think it is fundamental in the human brain. I mean i'm a i'm I'm not a neuroscientist, uh, but I am a disciple of um you know Daniel Kahneman's uh, thinking fast and slow like i I do a lot of psychology and sociology reading on my kind of side because I do think it is human nature and our need for certainty and and stability and our innate discomfort with the the new and different that that holds us back and 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 you even feel it you know at different stages of of your life like you know there's a sense well I have a whole long uh set of opinions about how Eight-year-olds are probably better positioned to come up with really creative solutions to the world's biggest problems than than also most of m- us.
0: Much better form, by the way. If you just watch how they hip hinge when they sit down, stand up, they they really got everything right.
1: They do. And then we crush it out of them. Like, what do we do? We like load them down with backpacks, we stick them in front of computers, we stick them in educational frameworks that kind of squash all that out of them. And and it and so I, you know, I think there is a especially in high achiever kind of the the process by which you become a very successful human and professional. I think a lot of that process turns you into a certain type of brain and a certain shape of thinker, and it squashes out a lot of creativity. and And you don't even realize it's happening to you because you are still being successful as you are going through this process, right? Like you graduate from a fancy school and you get degrees and then you go into a company where your boss gives you goals and then you're a good employee and you get rewarded and promoted if you hit those goals and and so you before long you've woken up at i don't know age 35 40 45 it it, it in a certain shape that works for a certain type of organization for a certain type of success and then the thing that really kills me is that all these like super talented people who've been turned into these little shaped puzzle pieces they then have to go out and hire innovation consultants and creativity consultants and personal coaches to help them tap into their real personal purpose. And I'm like, hang on guys, I think, I think we're getting something backwards here. Like let's call in those eight-year-olds and tell us where we're going wrong.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's uh, totally, Uh, it's, it's like we're born with perfect energy and then we start dosing ourselves with caffeine over time just to make up for a deficit we have elsewhere um, or we create elsewhere I'm curious to go back though for a minute to the stories of origin. So you you mentioned with Waymo, uh, certainly there was a lot of fear that it would obviously be worse than the human or be impossible to do. Loon seems like an interesting different genre of just not a needle mover societally right now, which is of course can very confusing, but in hindsight but makes sense. You know, what are kind of other, I'm very curious to hear like other stories, things getting started from those projects or others, you know, reasons for rejection that are common.
1: Yeah, well, I can give you a few examples of companies that actually were spun out of X because they didn't necessarily meet the very high bar that we have for creating businesses for for Alphabet because, I mean, Alphabet doesn't need tiny little, you know, $100 million businesses, like Alphabet's tasked us with finding the next Google. So I can give you examples. I mean,
0: it's so funny, of course. I mean, this makes sense. And I reflect on this, having worked at Apple, I I used to hear the same quotes, a $100 million revenue business would be, I think, in the 1% of 1% of businesses on planet Earth, perhaps the galaxy. So it is fascinating. Yeah. but, But of course, this propels you to build really incredible things as a result. So maybe a good stressor, but please, yeah, continue.
1: Yeah. And this is actually one of the challenges of the entrepreneurs coming into X. They're just like, wait, you're expecting us to hit the grand slam. Yeah. Like, and you're not interested in the singles and doubles. And we're like, yeah, we're not going to like, hate on you if you produce singles and doubles, but we're going to harvest the singles and doubles and set them to the side or give them away as open source. Or, you know, maybe another company could you could spit out a company, but like, we are here to hit to hit the grand slams. and And so there's a whole like, mental and emotional resetting that, that our entrepreneurs and, and Xers have to go into because there's fear, right? There's fear in thinking, but what but what if I can't hit the grand slam? What happens to me now? And and our view is this is a safe place for taking grand slam swings. We will reward you for the grand slamishness of your attempt, not for the achievement of the grand slam.
0: Fascinating, fascinating. We're interested in the height of the mountain you want to climb, not really in your result of summiting it. How? Okay, so what is the story here? If I'm like, if you're coaching me and I'm an entrepreneur that's come into X and I have an idea, what what do I need to be doing for kind of my first meeting? What are kind of dos and don'ts?
1: So I, I talked about the three circles and the importance of of articulating the the problem and the radical solution and the breakthrough technology we would be looking for your kind of hypotheses of one or two of those circles now just starting with the problem that's not real i mean there's lots of people who could say yes internet access or you know agriculture is a is a big problem but what is the angle on the problem that that you're particularly interested in and 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 more importantly like what are the different what's what's a technical approach or a solution that you're interested in exploring, so, so I can give you an example of something that to this day still feels like an amazing X moonshot, even though we had to put it on the shelf. So this is a project uh, that we called Foghorn and Kathy Cooper, uh, who was the, the founder of the Foghorn project, she and some other Xers had found a research paper. I think it was um, over at Xerox Park where they, the researchers at PARC had proven that it was possible to make a carbon-neutral fuel out of seawater. If you could do that, imagine the all the condition
0: for the planet, yes.
1: Yes, yes. So, of course, Kathy and, and others got super excited. They called up Matt Eisenman, who was the researcher over at PARC, and they said, Matt, would you like to come and give a tech talk? over at X. And so Matt came and gave a tech talk, they spent time getting to know him. He came on as kind of a, you know, 20% advisor and they started exploring whether Matt's work in the the park labs was actually something that they could prototype and and repeat and and then in parallel they started exploring whether there was actually going to be a viable business was was probably too like tight a word to put on it, but we actually had to check the economic viability because there's an awfully long distance between squeaking a vial of fuel out of you know however many gallons of seawater and actually getting something to the pump at a price that a consumer is willing to pay. Not to mention the logistics and the regulations and the taxes and the environmental stuff. And so, so they started. Ex- they had two parallel tracks of exploration where the, the technical folks were pushing forward on the prototype to, to identify big challenges in scaling that. And, and then uh, Kathy was leading an exploration of all the different factors that go into producing a, um, a gallon of this fuel. Uh, and Kathy had actually followed one of X's most deeply held principles, which is we call it find your monkey so what we mean by that that's basically a beautiful analogy which I can come back to but the idea is work on the hardest highest risk part of your problem first. Mm-hmm. So what most people like to do because we're human and we like to feel good not uncomfortable is we work on the stuff we know we already we know how to solve. It might be challenging but we think we can solve it so we go there. What Kathy and all X teams were were taught to do was go find the thing that if you cannot solve it, you might as well just pack up, go home, and move on to the next thing. And for a a moonshot in fuel, that had to be what the cost of that that gallon of fuel is. I mean, there are probably other things as well, and we did uncover some other monkeys, Um, but the big one was the cost of that gallon of fuel. And at the time, this was, what, 2014, 2015-ish, I think in Scandinavia, where fuel tends to be very expensive, I think fuel was selling at like $8, $9 a gallon. But in America, you'd have to get much closer to that $3, $4, $5 a gallon, where even you know, the most diehard kind of planet you know, fighters would would consider paying kind of a much smaller premium. So, so they set that target of $5 a gallon. They knew for sure they had to get it well under 15 and when they ran all these, these experiments and talked to lots of people who knew how to produce large amounts of hydrogen and how to produce large amounts of carbon and all these things, they realized they couldn't actually get the target down anywhere too far south of, of 15. And so they voted to, to kill the project. And so that remains one of those things that, you know, Kathy lived kind of the ideal and led kind of the ideal moonshot experience where it was just this beautiful hypothesis. The breakthrough technology was in this really nascent form. There was still a lot of exploration to do. Very few other companies would have bothered to kind of go on that journey. Uh, But she did it. She led us through it in as efficient a way as possible, such that we're glad of the investment we made, but we were able to shut it down and and move on to the next thing. And Kathy ended up actually founding another Moonshot, which she then spun out of X and is now, uh, she's the president of her own company called Dandelion, which is a home geothermal heating and cooling company. So she's lived that, that Moonshot arc twice now. And by the way, she started at Google as an AdWords uh, support rep.
0: That's amazing. So,
1: yeah, and our Moonshot takers are everywhere. Like Kathy is proof positive of that.
0: That's really fascinating. Uh, You know, the the high volatility narrative or story that really reminds me of Pixar, they'll have moments where directors break multiple times as they go throughout the script, sometimes changing the entire movie. And it's a similarly very emotional process there. And Ed Catmull will talk about a lot of his job is just coaching people through this, you know, a moment of failure where you put together a movie and Pixar is a big deal, a lot of rendering. And then you kind of realize after watching some of the dailies, it's just not there. You got to start from scratch, almost like realizing we can't make it happen with the, with the water to oil thing. But suppose, so, so I'm kind of curious to walk this through for a minute, just because I think it would be informative for people trying to figure out how to do a much harder feat. In my opinion, which is try to do this in like the public investor market, you know, with moonshot ideas. Obviously this is why um, Google X exists is because the, um, Investors are just much short term minded. But let's imagine I'm at Google and I come in and I say, Well, I've read Richard Feynman's paper uh, all the way. Um, what is it? There's a lot of room at the bottom or something. And I would like to build self self-repl- replicating nanobots. And I, I've read the paper and I can paint to you a picture uh, that it's really important. And uh, it enable unlocks many technologies. I mean, we could build better silicon processors with this. We could do healthcare with this. It's literally it's one of those victory conditions. It's like energy. You solve this, you can manufacture anything. We'll live like the Jetsons, where literally food is just a bag of atoms coming in, and it's assembled in the right way, and then and then you get whatever you want out. Perfect nutrition, what have you. So I don't think it's hard to articulate how lucrative and how valuable it would be. It's extremely unclear you know, that this would ever work. And so Feynman has a nice paper where he like a, explains it like he does to, to almost to a child. And he says, just make robots that make smaller and smaller things periodically. And so let's imagine I present this to you. But now what I'm interested in is it's like three, four months in. And I have, you know, to to, to your earlier story, I have... Um, you know, just like a very toy example, we can manufacture maybe like silicon wafers, which you could do with traditional manufacturing techniques, but it's neat. You know, what happens now at the Google X meeting?
1: Sure. So you would have come into the meeting with, yes, your prototype and shown us kind of why that was important. And, and more, but more importantly, not all the things that the prototype was doing well and perfectly at that point. But you would come in with lists of all the things that you had learned and all the things that you had been wrong about. So at that stage, and and really for the first few years of of any uh, ambitious venture like this, what we are listening for as as leaders and, and coaches at X is, are you learning as hungrily as you can? Are you experimenting in these really smart, beautiful ways? that is helping you de-risk the core problem. And, and this, is, this comes back to the, to the find your monkey idea. So to unpack that a little bit. So this grew out of Astro Teller, who's the captain of moonshots at X. He tells a story about what if you were asked to, if your you know, big project was to teach a monkey to recite Shakespeare while working on, while standing on a pedestal. And as I said, most humans would go build the pedestals because it makes your boss feel good, there's progress, yay. But it hasn't taught you a thing about whether or not the monkey can stand on a pedestal and recite the Shakespeare. And so we've used that repeatedly with our teams as a way to say to them, what are the biggest, riskiest things that you are facing? What are the biggest questions that you need to answer And give us a stack rank, like the activities that you are taking on, the experiments that you are running should match up with the highest risk on your list right now. And so really what we're listening and looking for is a a, is kind of inside your mind and soul as an entrepreneur, like, how are you approaching the problem? How deep is your understanding of it? And are you uncovering anything that says, you know what, this just isn't going to work or you're coming at it in a way that's, that's not actually going to get you all the way to the end? It might just kind of get you another couple of years and then you run into a, another dead end. So it's, so it's really just like unpacking some of the assumptions and the hypotheses that you're operating on and really helping you kind of design the, the next set of experiments to teach you.
0: So so that's interesting. So my understanding is you're so I've come to you and with my uh, self-replicating robot and really what you're looking for in me is not even the amount of progress I'm making but counter counterintuitively you're just looking for my learning rate that is to say the amount of ways I've kind of changed my thinking updated my model on various things is that right?
1: That's right. And that's counterintuitive and and unlike how most kind of meetings with your boss tends to go in the professional (laughs) world.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Um, That's very interesting. Now, another thing I'm curious about is what exactly am I asking for with my self-replicating robot? So say it's been three months. What am I asking you for at that point? Am I asking for enough financing to, to run it for a year, for 10 years, for a day? How does that work?
1: yeah. so so at X, we and this is one way we're quite different than than, say, if you're raising venture funding. So venture funding, the entrepreneur is kind of deciding what they what they want. They're looking for trenches of money, basically to buy themselves independence until they have to go out and raise some more. So at X, we ask Xers to operate under much I think, smaller and scrappier amounts of money so that teams use the money for learning. And not for scaling the operations of a of a business. Now there are some people, some entrepreneurs, who really want to move very quickly to the stage where you have products in market, con- customers that you're taking care of, you're scaling your operations. Like there are a lot of entrepreneurs for whom like that's their jam. And so, well, that's also how you get WeWork. But um, that. Like, that is a particular way to, to build and grow a company. We tend to push our entrepreneurs at X to stay in a much smaller, scrappier, learning-focused, tech-journey-focused mindset for longer. And we trust that when we've found that idea, that grand slam potential idea that we want to pour money on, heck, you're at Alphabet. Like, the money's going to show up. So I can give you an example of this, is we have a team that's that's working on something related to the future of hearing. And the lead of that project actually worked through, I believe, 35 different iterations of a moonshot idea. I, I don't know if they were all in hearing, but like at the end, like we now have a project that we are proud to, to call you know the NX project, and and now he's getting, you know, bits more, more money. And over time, as the confidence grows, then, then more money shows up and you graduate and become another bet. But we found there's so much inefficiency in large teams. Like, once you start getting, well, I mean, you felt it as a leader, right? Like, three, five, eight people, like, you can move really fast, almost like one brain. You start getting north of 10, 10, 20 layers of communication, and infrastructure creep in you go north of 2030 like you're adding more and more layers and that's all a distraction from kind of that cracking that that core problem so we try to keep the team small so that we can be as efficient as possible
0: and i presume of course the strength of google is i just i want to make sure you're correcting me here suppose i come uh, to you and and i say i actually i mean the team is we're three people here and um but we do need you know $5 million, $10 million, because we have to buy some parts or whatever. How do conversations like that work where it's, you know, very high upfront investments to get to any experiment validation?
1: Yeah, I mean, early, so we have lots of different stages of the pipeline. I think the earliest stuff, like the sort of two physicists and a dog, like you're probably talking some, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, maybe low hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then as you get a little bit more learning and a little bit more, you know, confidence in the idea, going from hundreds of thousands to small millions of dollars, like that happens. And so we have conversations at all those stages. And, you know, now you can see by the investment we've made in Loon and self-driving cars and others, there are, you know, plenties of millions of dollars available, but we try to, the, the scrappiness drives creativity, And that constraint, I mean, everyone's going to complain about it. Like I've never seen an entrepreneur, you know, not complain about the amount of money they've been given, but that constraint forces focus and creativity, even if it's a bit jarring to be that scrappy at a world trillion dollar company.
0: A hundred percent. Are um, renders or kind of um, Photoshopped images, movies, uh, is that ever used and expensed on to to create a sense of what this could become? Or is everything in just words?
1: Oh, goodness. We have one of the best prototyping labs in the world. In fact, we just a few weeks ago put up a video on our YouTube channel inside the design kitchen is what we call it. And so, Joe Sargent is a former mythbusters stunt guy oh, wow. who now runs the design kitchen and in the design kitchen we have all manner of tools for prototyping and exploration and and our building um, where which you know due to the pandemic only small small numbers of people can get into now we have you know laser labs and you know bio labs and we have for lots of like low pressure high pressure chambers like all, all the goodies that you would want. Uh, if you're making things that are not just just software, um, and then we do also use um, visual design tools. My team often gets tapped for storytelling because often the t- the story you tell yourselves as a team is itself kind of a very strategic and and inspirational process. So yeah, all those tools we use.
0: Now, as a storyteller, I'm curious to get your take on one particular thing for my nanobots project. But also more broadly, I think across all areas of biology, I think it's one thing to try to get, you know, mankind excited about a self-driving car. I can see it. I can visualize it. A loon is incredibly scenic, especially the way you guys rolled it out in New Zealand, to your point, who doesn't want to travel there? Yet, if you're working on, say, synthetic biology, um, if you're working on nanobots, the whole point is that it's really small. So how do you think about, you know, getting people excited about that, given that size issue?
1: Yeah, so um that those are the situations that that my team loves to kind of work on because they're kind of intellectual and emotional puzzles. My deep belief is that moonshots are built not just with heads but with hearts. And so much of of what my team tries to do and what every entrepreneur needs to do is really get people to to believe to to show up and be like I either explicitly, I support you, here's money, here's partnership, here, here's advice. Or in many cases, with very radical, risky new technologies, we just need people to be like, okay, I see what you're doing. I think you're kind of crazy, but I'm not going to stand in your way right now. You know, We've seen things cut both ways, honestly, with X. Anyone who remembers Glass, which I worked on quite a lot, both in iteration one and iteration two more recently, the pendulum of Opinions swinging wildly from Monday to Friday, like best thing in the world, worst thing in the world.
0: <laughs> but but right, so so glass obviously very visual. Um, I mean, I guess that's the whole point. Still to date, I think one of the best, um, you know, product for that original video with a with a cyclist. But say I'm working on say you know something with biology. Um, to your earlier example. I mean, am I? Are, are, what would be your recommendation to me? I mean, should I make these animated renders of like cells moving? Is that exciting? How would you convey it?
1: Yeah, so um, I always start with who is the audience you are trying to reach? Because if you are talking to an investor that is a very different audience, even an investor with deep life sciences or biotech experience, Someone might, it might be an investor with a PhD in the field that you're working in and they already know the science, or it can be an investor with industry experience where they're kind of, you know, just having faith that the science will work out and you seem like a smart person, so great. Um, so an investor audience is very different than if you're asking someone to be on your, uh, on your board. So perhaps you are talking to an academic who, again, might you know, be able to speak science with you. Um, but they don't know as much about commercialization, and so how do you find that common bridge? Or maybe you're bringing on someone onto the board who is from industry, and you need to explain your vision so that they feel like they're spending their time on something that has commercial potential. Or maybe you're, you know, preparing for the kind of ethics. You're you're trying to do a research study, and you have to prove that you've thought through all the um, things you need for to get through the ethics and. IRBs, the independent review boards, like that's a very different communications task. So in every case, start with your audience and then from there, understand what it is that you want them to think, feel, or do after they've engaged with you, and then think about what you are what you're you know based on that goal and what shift you need them to make, you, you know, do something for you or just stay neutral or whatever. then you start to get into, okay, what might be the, the right moments and, and tactical vehicles to do that? What are the kind of most important messages? I often, I mean, the easiest thing in the world is like, if you can't write down on a post-it note in three little things, like what you need someone to think or feel or do, like you got more thinking to do on your own side before you even get to to thinking about um, what you're going to say to them.
0: It's very interesting. I'm kind of curious, you know, you, you spent obviously um, a lot of time at Alphabet and Google, obviously honing the craft that you were just talking about now, any kind of interesting stories of a product that was particularly difficult to communicate that that you had to workshop?
1: Sure. So I'll, I'll tell you about my adventures with the smart contact lens. So this was, I think we announced it in January, 2014. And at that time, we were still part of Google. And at that point, I mean, everyone was starting to get tuned into, whoa, Google is stretching into all parts of your life and all the data. And this was going to be the first time that Google was going to go like on or slash in your body as in a contact lens on your eye with a little computer chip and a teeny little um, glucose sensor. Because the moonshot there was, could we make a contact lens with this teeny tiny glucose sensor and teeny, teeny computer chip? that could measure the glucose in tears such that it would be easier for people with diabetes to keep track of their blood sugar, like if we could prove the correlation between the tears and the blood. So we had to figure out how to explain this to the world. And Brian Otis, who was the, um, the creator of this project, he had come from the University of Washington, where he had proven this in a lab, as in he could get the sensors really tiny. And he was attaching them to like the sides of plastic water bottles in a lab to see if it could measure oh, things in in, in yes. liquid so that was as far as he got it as an academic and the reason he came to X was because he wanted to actually see if this teeny tiny min- miniaturized electronics could be used in in real applications and and actually help people in their in their daily lives and so we had gone through the you know, building contact lenses, and we were ready to move into into some clinical trials. We had had done some early trials that, that were promising. And the challenge was, how do you explain this such that the world hears the, oh my gosh, we're going to help potentially people with diabetes, but we steer clear of two third rails, essentially. One was the FDA. So the FDA does not like it when researchers and ambitious types start mouthing off about what their medical device will do before the medical device had gone through trials and been proven to say it does what it does. So we had to be super clear not to tweak the regulators. And we also had to watch out for the pe- the people who were watching Google to be like, oh my God, Google's coming into my body to take all the things. And so so Brian had never worked on, on an, a big unveil like this and, and ha- certainly had never worked with Uh, the kinds of, you know, journalists and others who watch Google so closely. And I kept saying to him, we have to find this really inspirational and accessible way to make this land on the inspiring side of the line, not the terrifying, creepy side of the line. Now, part of this was storytelling with images. So, if you go back and look at our website, uh, uh, x.company, there are beautiful images of this elegant, magical-looking contact lens balanced on the tip of your finger. But we also had to get over that kind of yuck, weird factor of like, wait, is this a computer chip stuck on my eye? Like, what? And so one day we were in the lab and Brian showed me the glucose sensor and computer chip and he put it on the tip of my finger with uh, tweezers. And I said, oh, it's like glitter. Now, keep in mind, he's a PhD in electrical engineering. The man looked at me with this deep horror on his face and he's like, it's not like glitter. It's like one of the most incredibly impressive intellectual innovations on the planet. How dare you, little fluffy word PR girl? Like, how dare you? And I was like, yeah, but Brian, like, this is how we get people to understand what this is so that then they can appreciate the impressiveness of the achievement and its potential. You got to anchor them in something they know, which in this case is, it's like glitter. And so we sort of agreed to disagree in the moment. And then at about 10 o'clock that night, I got a link in my email to a PDF from the, Inter- from the International Glitter Standards Foundation. Uh, Brian had researched the tech specs of glitter. Uh, and actually, <laughs> glitter is the same dimensions as his little chip. And so he's like, okay, you can use glitter. And the rest is history.
0: <laughs> Fascinating. That's interesting. And that's a great mnemonic, um, I guess, for everyone to think of what their glitter equivalent is.
1: Um, We also, by the way, spent a ton of time educating people on the problem of diabetes and what it's like to live with diabetes. I was talking earlier about yeah, yeah, yeah problems. So in 2014, everyone was aware that diabetes is a disease that a lot of people are living with. But because so many people are living with it, it had really um, masked the fact that it is a, quite a dangerous disease and it is a, a big burden on you to, to manage it effectively. Uh, one of my, we interviewed a bunch of Googlers to understand what it was like to live with diabetes, either as a, you know, to have it yourself or to, you know, to have a family member with it. And a friend of mine said, Courtney, it's like having a part-time job on top of my daily life, just managing her diabetes. And I was like, so, I, so actually, okay, so this is a three-part story. Of how do you tell these stories? And it's beautiful visuals helped us in this case, an analogy that helped people anchor in the, you know, the reality so then they could hear, feel your future as well. And then thirdly, anchoring them in the problem in a really emotional way to cut through the, yeah, yes. So yeah, that re- it's really stuck with me.
0: That's fascinating and probably a a, a great point to end on. Thank you so much. I mean, I I really enjoyed both the the hearing origins about the project, the the reasoning behind it. um, I appreciate you humoring me with my Richard Feynman walkthrough there in the middle. But I do think that's quite helpful for anyone kind of thinking about how to fund something high stakes. Yeah, I mean, as a a, a citizen uh, and, and humanoid of this planet, I guess we're all really thankful to you for your work. So keep it up with the glitter.
1: Uh, well thanks for having me. And I really do believe we need more moonshot factories and more moonshot takers. And honestly, so much of what's stopping us is the sense that it's someone else's job and it could be all of our all of our jobs. So that's let's live into that potential.
0: Great. I think you've earned yourself a few cold emails. So you know apologies and thanks for that. Thank you again, <laughs> Thank Courtney.
1: You so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.